Before I talk about those next week's assignments, uh, let me just say first off uh, how incredibly pleased I am with the level of engagement that I've seen so far this week in the discussion board forum. I'm seeing some uh, very reflective commentary in those posts. It appears that you're taking the time to critically analyze the work that your colleagues are doing and responding accordingly. Uh, so I hope that you can maintain that level of energy going forward. Uh, I also want to address uh, the issue of reading, reading in this course. So I realize that many of you have taken other graduate courses here at North Central. And unfortunately, I'm not privy to the syllabi and requirements of each of those courses. So please excuse me if I'm making some assumptions. Uh, but reading for graduate level courses is often very different than for undergraduate courses, both in the sheer uh, volume of reading that's expected, also the intensity of the material, uh, and the expectations for what you're supposed to come away with after having reviewed that material. So I draw that to your attention because this course has a significant amount of reading. Uh, and at first glance, it can seem a bit overwhelming, uh, particularly if you're coming back from a layoff from school or if some of your other courses uh, had a lower volume to consume. So I've posted for you in module two, a resource from the American Psychological Association. Uh, it's a short article written by Beth Azar called Sink or Swim, uh, the subtitle, tackle that endless pile of books and journal articles with the help of these reading tips. I would encourage you to skim through this, uh, which happens to be one of the tips that's provided in the reader. It's only three pages long, uh, but I think it provides some great recommendations on how to help you move through large volumes of material uh, efficiently, but also effectively. So I don't want you simply moving through material at the fastest pace possible uh, because that could affect your long-term retention. And certainly in order to engage uh, the class and to do well on the assessments, you need to make sure that you're retaining some of this material as well. So I just wanted to bring that to your attention. If you see it in the module, you'll know what that's all about. Um, I also want to uh, thank those of you that have contacted me with any structural issues in the course. Actually, in module two, uh, someone sent me a very nice message with regards to one of the videos no longer being available. I do my best to police the course on a regular basis to make sure that all of the links are still active and the videos that are linked from YouTube or another third-party site are still available. Uh, but those can disappear sometimes without warning. And if you happen to come across that situation, please let me know. I will do my best to find a substitute or another location where you can view the original content. Um, and in worst case scenarios, I'll simply eliminate that item from the week at no penalty to you. So please don't hesitate to do that as well. Uh, this week in session two is all about global virtual teams. So we're hoping to build a deeper understanding of why learning to work in a virtual team is important and how that might different for global leaders. We want to try to identify 
why virtual teams are often hard to get. And what do I mean by hard to get? I mean, they're difficult to understand. They're difficult to maintain. They can be challenging uh, to maximize the potential. Um, and we also want to take a look at some of the characteristics that make virtual teams successful, both in a domestic situation, but also in a global uh, situation. And I'll talk about in a moment how those two things uh, can share some significant competencies, uh, but where there's additional hurdles for the global leader. In this module, you have a number of readings, uh, four to be specific, that talk a bit about the research on leading virtual teams, and then also provide some practical tips on how you can put the theoretical basis into work. So make sure that you take a look at those. And there's also two videos, uh, a shorter video by NSEED professor Erin Meyer, where she talks about how companies can boost the efficiency of multinational teams by focusing on how they communicate across cultures. She talks a little bit about the concept of cultural relativity and why it can be difficult for companies to place expatriates in situations where they can effectively boundary span, which is one of the issues that you may have read about in week one, if you paid close attention to the definition proposed by uh, Mendenhall and his colleagues on global leadership, this idea of boundary spanning and of presence, um, and the fact that simply being in a new location, a foreign location in and of itself may not be sufficient to develop those particular traits that are necessary to be an effective global leader. And then the second video, is a Global Leader in Focus video that focuses on Jack Ma. And those of you that are unfamiliar with Jack Ma will probably come to know his name very quickly, uh, albeit maybe not from this class, uh, but just from your day-to-day -day activities. Uh, he is the CEO and founder of the Alibaba Group, which is a widely successful internet-based uh, internet business. Uh, which if I had to describe it in uh, a few short words, I would say it's, it's very akin to Amazon. It's not exactly uh, a good comparison, uh, but it's probably the closest we can get in this short of time. Uh, he ha also happens to be one of the most successful Chinese entrepreneurs uh, of the century uh, and was actually the first Chinese entrepreneur to land on the cover of Forbes magazine. Uh, this video is a little bit longer. Uh, it's an interview conducted with him at the Davos Economic Forum uh, back in 2015. Uh, but I think you'll find it extremely interesting. Both of those videos and the readings, of course, will serve as the basis for this week's test. So this week's test is a little bit different from the module one test, which was primarily true and false and multiple choice. This week's test is short answer. So you have a total of six questions and you have one hour in order to complete those six questions. Um, the prompts are also 
relatively short. And I would encourage you to keep your responses equally concise. Uh, I will give you a heads up that most of the questions in this test are drawn from the videos. However, in order to properly um, provide evidence for the claims that you're making, you may need to draw upon those readings from this week. Uh, if you're completely pressed for time and you only have the option of watching the videos or reading the articles, I would probably err on the side of watching the videos. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about why we're focusing in on virtual teams. Why are virtual teams important to the study of global leadership? Well, what's interesting is the situational nature of leader and follower relationships and boundaries. So cross-functional and geographically dispersed teams uh, comprise of multinational or multicultural groups are often what the global leader is faced uh, with as far as their working environment. And when you're working with this type of team, setting clear goals is key. Um, the problem that often surfaces in a virtual team environment comprised of uh, individuals located in, in different time, different space, uh, and in different cultures, of course, is technology, right? So intermittent engagement, language barriers, um, perception of language, all of those can hamper or mitigate the ability to set clear goals for a virtual team. Uh, and like domestic teams, um, research suggests that in order for a team to be effective, that is to complete the task it was coalesced to do, the goals have to be both specific and they have to be attainable and they have to be measurable and we have to orient the team to a shared vision. One of the problems that we see arising in, in virtual teams, both domestically and, and globally, is this idea of drift. So drift can often occur when team members lose focus uh, when they fail to see their work as important to the organization, uh, or they get caught up in engaging in unrelated dialogue. And so those of you that have ever participated in a face-to-face -face meeting um, understand that all of those things happen in that context, and that they just happen to be magnified through a virtual environment. For example, it's much easier for me to look at my cell phone, send some email messages, check my Facebook account when I'm on a virtual meeting than it is when I'm in the same physical proximity to the individual that's leading the meeting. If we then layer on top of that some cultural nuances, for example, um, intercultural communication issues, preferred styles of speaking or expectations of how a leader should in fact conduct a meeting, then you can see that that issue becomes 
uh, more um, critical, for lack of a better term, that it in fact magnifies, intensifies the issues with setting a clear goal. Another major issue um, that often arises when global leaders attempt to both organize and manage a virtual team is this notion of shared mental maps. So psychological research, research on intercultural communication, on leadership, for example, all recognize that we as human beings create these mental maps about the world. Um, they're oftentimes referred to as schema. And essentially, there are ways in which we view the world, and they allow us to move through the world with certain expectations. So you create a mental map about how you expect certain individuals in your life to respond in certain situations. You create mental maps around, for example, driving your vehicle, uh, about going through intersections, what you look for, uh, what you expect to happen. And what these mental maps allow us to do is to run on autopilot in certain situations. Rather than having to sit back and analyze every action that occurs in our daily life, we build experience over time from childhood through adulthood. And then we essentially create a toolbox of these experiences. And when we're faced with a new or somewhat uncertain situation, we call upon these mental maps as references. So if it's the first time we've been to a new location, we call upon our prior experiences to help inform us about how to act, how to respond, etc. And so everybody has these mental maps that help guide them. What's interesting is that um, there are many contributors to these mental maps, um, predominantly things like um, influence from your parents. So you inherit uh, some aspects of your own mental maps from your parents. That comes from the household you grew up in, the rules that were reinforced, the values uh, that are made prominent. Oftentimes religion contributes to your mental map. The uh, level of education that you received, where you received your education, the manner in which you received it. Um, all of these uh, factor into these mental maps that you create for yourself. So research on teams in general suggests that when we get people together in groups who share a more universal agreement about the world, that is their mental maps are aligned, um, it's often easier for them to be more effective. And those of you that have gone through some sort of team training may be familiar uh, with the terminology about storming, norming, and conforming, um, which is essentially some of the stages that teams go through uh, when we first bring uh, disparate groups of people together. Right? And the storming phase that typically happens at the beginning is where uh, individuals' views about the world or about the particular task that they're being asked to complete um, diverge just slightly from others in the group. And some of that has to do with uh, your mental map. That is how you view the role of a team member, how you view the role of the leader in your group. 
the kind of deference that you believe should be provided to other members of your group, um, who should take the lead, uh, when it's appropriate to be critical of other people. And so sometimes it can take a period of adjustment for a team of even like-minded individuals to coalesce, right? And those of you that were athletes um, understand this well, right? When you bring in a new member to your team, or maybe it's the beginning of a new season and you have a complement of new players, even though they're highly skilled in the sport that you're going to be playing, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have a winning team, right? As I remember my football coach, uh, you know, and Pop Warner used to always say when we made a mistake, uh, you know, the team's not gelling. Right? They're just not gelling. And what he meant was we're, we're just not on the same page. Uh, we don't understand our roles and responsibilities. We haven't built a level of trust that allows us to anticipate each other's uh, actions. And so while we might all be skilled and are capable of carrying out our own job function, uh, when we compound those together, it doesn't function as a unit. Well, uh, virtual teams, particularly uh, global virtual teams, struggle with this uh, even more so because sharing knowledge is uh, significantly more difficult when you're in a less rich environment. And so a face-to-face uh, environment allows you not only to listen to the words that are being spoken, but also to read uh, body language, to read the intensity of the room, uh, to help better inform you on the message that's being sent. Uh, in a virtual environment, it's a little bit more tricky. Um, obviously, now we have the added benefit of um, visual imagery and live synchronous technology that tries to replicate to a great degree um, what happens in face-to-face -face contact. But those of you that have the opportunity to engage in a, a go-to-meeting, for example, where you can see everyone on the screen, and then you compare that experience to being in a room around a table with a group of people, would probably agree that they're not identical. And it can be somewhat difficult if I were to ask you to point out where exactly you saw the deficiency, right? So if you held two meetings on the same day, one was face-to-face -face and one was live synchronous, you might feel as though you accomplished the same set of tasks, and you, and you might on paper. Um, but you could probably say that they were dissimilar in some way uh, without being able to specifically point out what was missing from one versus the other. Okay? And some of that just comes from uh, your ability to read the room, to read what's happening. Um, it's just different. Right? This can be problematic. Uh, when you're in the storming phase of team building and you're trying to manage a group of people who, again, have disparate mental maps, who may struggle somewhat with language barriers, who may have a certain view about uh, implicit leadership behaviors. They may be expecting you as a leader to manage this meeting uh, in one way, uh, which is completely... Uh, opposite from the way in which you believe a leader should run a meeting. 
And so uh, those problems, again, become intensified uh, and create issues. We also have uh, time as a primary issue. So we have time zone differences, which, of course, uh, create pressures on uh, team members. And some of you may have the opportunity to deal with that in the next upcoming weeks as we work through team projects. Um, we also, though, have this issue of our understanding of time. So those of us that have never lived or traveled outside the United States extensively uh, may not recognize that there are different ways in which people understand time. Uh, so I uh, have a friend who is from a foreign country, uh, and anytime I set plans with this individual to meet, they're always late. Okay. Always, always 20 to 30 minutes late. It doesn't matter what time of the day that I set for us to get together, uh, official meeting or just an unofficial get together. Um, doesn't matter whether I've confirmed it. This person is always late. At least to me, the person is late because I have a very linear understanding of time. Uh, but to her, that's not viewed as late. That 20 to 30 minute uh, buffer time uh, to her is viewed as uh, culturally appropriate. That showing up at this specific time at which I've set a meeting is inappropriate. Uh, and that if she did that, um, it would be viewed negatively. Okay, So if you don't understand that there's different ways of at looking at time, when someone is consistently late in a global virtual team, you may misread that cue, right? You may take that to mean they're not motivated, they have a poor work ethic, that they're just interested in the project, uh, when in fact it might be they're showing you deference, that they are showing up late because that is culturally appropriate for them. And this can also happen when you set deadlines for, for work products. You know, in the U.S., when you say, i get that to you soon, uh, soon generally connotates somewhat immediate delivery. So if it's more than a couple hours, we would probably say, i get it to you tomorrow or in the next couple of days. Uh, and we generally wouldn't construe the term soon to be a week or two weeks or three weeks. But that, again, is not a universal understanding of language. So you may have someone from a different country on your virtual global team. You ask them when they can complete a specific task, and they say soon. And then it's not delivered for several days, and you're left wondering why they didn't meet their self-imposed deadline. So the absence of physical co-location uh, further hampers your ability to understand that, uh, because you can't simply just pop over to the office next door or walk across the building to go check in with this person and do a root cause analysis of why these things are happening. So what does this mean for a leader who's trying to manage a, glo a global virtual team? It means that uh, by and large, you will have to increase the intensity and frequency of your leader intervention. So whereas when you lead a physical team, you might only be meeting once a week you may have to double or triple that for a virtual team. 
right, in order to have a proper amount of uh, oversight and also to spend a significant amount of time um, building trust. Um, in the absence of a physical environment, global virtual teams have to take additional steps to ensure that there's clarity of communication. And as I just mentioned, to establish trust within the team. Um, some of the ways that researchers suggest that we go about doing this uh, includes early adoption of norms. So rather than making an assumption about what is appropriate standards of, of behavior or timelines, in a global virtual team, the team as a whole has to adopt a set of universal norms. So this might mean that everyone has to be flexible in their working environment. Um, in your expertise directory, you were asked about the ways in which you like to work. And in this module, you'll see you've been assigned to a team which will function for the remainder of the course. And when you review your team member's expertise directory, you may find that their preferred style of working and communication doesn't match yours. That's okay. Um, and it shouldn't automatically be seen as a hurdle. Uh, but what it does mean is that your group is going to have to set a standard. So you're going to have to find a middle ground and adopt norms that everyone can abide by. So if you can imagine in a cross-cultural situation, uh, one, the leader has to be self-aware enough, has to be uh, culturally savvy enough to know that there could be difference in these areas uh, like time, like deadlines, like leader expectations, in order to be able to bring those up as a topic to set norms. This also goes towards developing clear processes, which is another recommendation when you're leading a virtual team. So once we have our ground rules established, then we have to establish the, our processes. And process development is difficult. So working in team, you need to make sure that everyone is working under the same set of processes. Otherwise, at the end, when each person is delivering their portion of a project, you may find that someone else went off on a tangent and has delivered something that is not conducive to the overall goal. Uh, facilitating background sharing sessions is another recommendation. And I try to model some of these best practices here in the course, which is why you have an expertise directory. Now, it's also a great way for us to just informally get to know one another and, and put a face with a name and understand sort of the backgrounds of the folks in this class. But nothing says that that wouldn't be a useful exercise in any virtual team that you were building. Uh, imagine how much more you know about your team members from the expertise directory. You know what they look like. You know what their educational background is. You know what their work history is like. You know uh, what personal interests they might have. You know their preferred communication style. Uh, you may know a little bit about their uh, personal life, depending upon how much they shared. Uh, all of which help us to gain a better sense of who our group 
is, make it easier to find common ground, and also help facilitate that trust building that's so important. And then the last thing that researchers recommend is holding members accountable to established benchmarks. So when you're leading a virtual team where there's a significant amount of autonomy and uh, we're not physically co-located and people may not uh, feel the same pressure to complete tasks uh, because of this disconnect from the other group members, it's really important that those deadlines or interim benchmarks are established early, that they're clearly communicated to the team, that the team agrees on those benchmarks, and that you agree in advance um, what kind of repercussions there will be if they're not met. And that sort of goes hand in hand with that adoption of norms. Uh, It will give you some insight, particularly in cross-cultural settings, as to what's viewed as appropriate levels of accountability based on the task which you're addressing. So while virtual teams can be significantly useful if created correctly, uh, they can allow people from um, all over the world to connect and leverage the best individuals to complete a task, um, there's a significant trade-off involved, right? And the intensity and frequency of other processes must increase uh, to compensate for the inherent weaknesses of this virtual connection that we're utilizing. Um, Back in 2000, uh, when uh, e-leading, so that's the term that generally is associated with virtual teams, e-leading sort of came into the forefront of global research. Um, Kesbaum said, and I'm quoting, teams separated by time and space fail to go through the personal interaction of the level and intensity that is required to create and maintain a common purpose, close quote. So even proponents of virtual teams, um, they admit that there's significant management challenges that await leaders that choose to use this methodology. Um, And that in the virtual environment, it creates a significant number of delays to the internal processes that can affect performance, um, namely uh, trust, cohesion, and accountability. So that's, that's really the basis of this week's module, is trying to understand um, with a bit more clarity how these um, drawbacks can be mitigated to some extent, what's required of a global leader to both identify these challenges and create innovative solutions to overcome them, uh, and three, to recognize why we would go through the effort to even have these virtual teams. Uh, if there's this many obstacles to them functioning at a high level, are they worth the cost? And that's what I hope that you'll get out of your review in module two.